And here we go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on President's Day, Monday, February 19th, 2018. Kicking off the show was Night Spots by the Cars off of the Candio album. Big show to get to today. We have got Major League Baseball as uh, pitchers and catchers have reported spring training right around the corner. Uh, we will talk Major League Baseball in general, and we will talk about the Mets specifically. We'll take a look at the NBA, the uh, complete and colossal waste of time that is the All-Star Game uh, and All-Star Weekend is uh, finally over. Uh, the trade deadline, the trade uh, deadline is come and went. Uh, it's been a while since we did a show, so we'll break down uh, some of the winners and losers there. Uh, and talk specifically about uh, the mess that is uh, annually the New York Knicks. This is now uh, an annual right, basically. Rebuilding since 2002, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we'll talk maybe a little NFL as we wrap up the show, as we look forward, uh, or those of us who have no lives, look forward to uh, the Combine and then uh, subsequently after that the Draft. But we begin with Major League Baseball and uh, the very tepid, very lukewarm free agency period uh, that has gone on all winter, um, spurring uh, talks of uh, collusion uh, from some players uh, and agents, um, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of complaining, carping uh, from the players, although some, like uh, Dustin Moss, basically uh, stood up and said, look, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. We signed a, a lousy uh, uh, collective bargaining agreement. And the reason for that is um, teams now, there's a luxury tax in Major League Baseball, so teams have to pay a penalty for going over a certain threshold as far as uh, payroll is concerned. Uh, there's the international bonus pool um, as far as money is concerned. So in the old days, when the Yankees could just go pluck an Alfonso Soriano and give him a ton of money, uh, to sign with them, uh, there were no consequences for that. Now there are. Teams have a, a set amount as far as the bonus pool they can use on international signings um, to try to even the playing field, so to speak. Um, and then you also have the advent where uh, if players are signed as free agents, um, you have to give up a draft pick depending on their service time. And so teams are reluctant more and more because now, for some reason, Major League Baseball is, looks at the draft the same way the NFL does. Uh, teams are more and more reluctant to give up draft picks to sign free agents. And then I think there's probably also perhaps history, recent history, and maybe a little common sense sprinkled in there, which is it's patently absurd and idiotic to give a 32-year-old pitcher a five-year contract worth $100-plus million because they almost never work, right? How's the uh, Jordan Zimmerman contract working out for the Tigers, right? Guy was a very good pitcher for the Nationals. Tigers gave him an obscene, obscene amount of money and contract, and he's been nothing short of a disaster since he's been there. Um, how about... The David Price contract, which although only a year in looks to be like that will be a disaster. What was it? Seven years, $200 million the Red Sox gave him. I mean, again, I don't understand how many more times teams need to learn that to pay for past to pay obscene amounts of money for past performance is folly. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, finally, I think teams are wising up. You also have younger GMs who are relying more and more on analytics which we'll get to my take on the whole analytics craze uh, in a second. Um, but I think you have more and more younger GMs that are using analytics uh, as their guide when evaluating players. And so that's factored in. And so it's, it's been a confluence of events here. And so you still have guys like Jake Arrieta unsigned. Although, again, Jake Arrieta reportedly is seeking somewhere around between a five- and a seven-year contract, you know, for $200 million plus. Well, I understand Jake Arrieta has had a nice little recent run here with the Cubs. Prior to that, he was a failed uh, high draft pick for the Orioles. He got, he's had a nice run with the Cubs, although his last two seasons have shown signs of decline statistically. His, the velocity on his fastball has been down one or two miles an hour. His innings have gone down. He's experienced some injuries. His wins have gone down. His ERA has gone up. And he's 31 years old. Why in your right mind 
would you sign Jake Arrieta to say a five-year, even $150 million contract? Why would you do that? So that in his age 36 year, first of all, he may not even be pitching by then anymore. And you're, you're, owed, you're, you're, you're on the books, you're on the hook for what? 20 plus, you know, 20, 18 million dollars to a guy that's probably either A, may not even be available because he may be injured and or B, wholly ineffective. It makes no sense. So I think really that's the heart of it. I mean, it makes no sense to give guys. I mean, look at the Jacoby Ellsbury contract the Yankees gave him. Right, they that it was one of the worst contracts. I would they give him seven years, one hundred and sixty million dollars, and that was an overreaction to the fact that they lost Alfonso Siriano. I mean, sorry, not Alfonso Siriano, Robinson Robinson Cano, who, by the way, how's that contract looking for Seattle? Would they give him ten years, two hundred and thirty million dollars? He's thirty four years old already, folks. He's had like one one good year, one decent year, and one not very good year so far with Seattle. And they're on the hook for, what, seven more years at $24 million a year for a guy who, you know, while is a nice player, don't get me wrong, he's a good player, but he's certainly not worth that. I mean, these, you know, you can go all the way back to the, the, the ridiculous contract the Rangers gave A-Rod. Practically bankrupted the owner. And these things almost never work out. So that, to me, is the biggest thing. Now, the whole analytics debate, I mean, look, it started with Moneyball and Billy Bean, right? But that was done for a very specific reason, okay? And that was, in those days, there, the, the, the spending in baseball was unchecked. So teams like the Yankees uh, did, and the Dodgers and, you know, the Red Sox, it's not just the Yankees, had decided advantages over teams from smaller markets that did not generate the same revenue. Okay, and I would use the Mets as an example, although we all know the Mets try like to operate like a mid-tier city, right? So we'll we'll leave the Mets out of it for now. I mean, I'm not saying the Mets have never spent; they have. They just never spend wisely, or mostly have not spent wisely. So in those days, right, which was the I guess early aughts. The Yankees and teams of their ilk had a decided advantage over teams like the A's, right? Who didn't just didn't have the money to spend. So Billy Bean said, we need to approach this in a different way. And we need to look at statistics that were traditionally not given value to a player's either potential and or production. So things like on-base percentage. And now that was nothing new. Bill James came up with stuff like this years ago. I know this because my grandfather was one of his original subscribers to his literal newsletter. And when I say newsletter, it was full on, like typed out, hard copy newsletter. This is going back into the the, the early 80s. And I remember my grandfather sending me some of those. Right. I don't even think I probably read him. I couldn't. I'm sure I could not be bothered at the time when I was like 14 or 15 to read Bill James. I mean, I think I tried a little bit and I really probably couldn't get through it. Um, so it's not that, you know, that's 30 years plus ago. But so what Billy Bean did is he said, look, let's look at things like on base percentage, right? What's important in baseball? Everybody loves batting average. It's a sexy statistic. But who cares how you get on base? The name of the game in baseball is to get on base and to score more runs than your opponent. And the best way to score runs is to be on base more often than not. Right. And that's why he didn't like buntings. You don't sacrifice outs and things like that. Didn't feel like the stolen base derived that much value, right? The risk-reward wasn't there. And so they looked at things like that, right? They looked at, 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 at guys that were otherwise undervalued. Uh, you know, they didn't look good in, an, in a uniform, right? They weren't five-tool guys, right? And so that's how you had, you know, a bunch of guys that were sort of misfits and cast-offs become productive players. Now, to be fair... Those Oakland A's teams of the early aughts also were good because why? Because they had Mulder, Zito, and Hudson, three really good young pitchers, all under their control, all pitching on rookie deals. So they weren't making a ton of money, right? And starting pitching is still the name of the game in baseball. Well, they're trying to get rid of that 
They're trying. The analytics geeks are trying their best to, to completely minimize starting pitching. And I somewhat understand it to a certain extent because it's so expensive and because the rash of injuries over, let's say, the last 10 years, where when I was growing up, 200 innings was not even uh, – I mean, that was like – that was the ceiling. That was the floor. Like 200 innings for a starting pitcher – if you couldn't give a team 200 innings, we're not even going to talk to you. Now you get a guy to give you 200 innings. He's a horse. He's, a, he's an anchor in your staff. When I was growing up, 200 innings was, that, that was again, that was pay to play. Like you had to at least give 200 innings before we have a discussion for you to be a starting pitcher. And now, you know, that is certainly not the case. And part of that is a specialization in the bullpen as well. Thank you very much, Tony LaRusso. Right, so now teams want to go five, get five, six innings from their starters, and now let's have a parade of various guys out of the bullpen, and make sure every game is three and a half to four hours. <laughs> so the analytics stuff started with Bean in the '80s, right? And Sandy Alderson supposedly was a proponent of that as well, right? And Billy Bean kind of grew up under Sandy Alderson as far as, as being an executive is concerned when they were with the A's. So that's kind of, and now it's really devolved though. You know, now we have things like war, right? This wins above replacement and all these defensive metrics. Again, how about this? How about these metrics? How about your eyes? How about I can tell who's a good fielder and who's not by watching them? How about that? Remember those days? You know, how about not undervaluing RBIs because of opportunities? Well, if the name of the game in baseball is to score more runs, and I have a guy that drives in 130 RBIs against a guy who drives in 90 RBIs, I don't give a damn if the guy who drove in 130 RBIs had more opportunities than the 90 guy. So therefore, he does, it doesn't mean he's not better somehow. Guess what? He was successful with the opportunities he had. That's all that matters to me. You know, people tried to make this argument a couple of years ago, the Brian Kennys of the world, who I generally like on Major League Baseball Network, but has now completely bought in to everything analytics has to offer. So they're trying to make the case that Mike Trout was better than Miguel uh, Cabrera, even though Miguel Cabrera won a triple crown and had insane numbers. Now, Mike Trout's a great player. Don't get me wrong. And they tried to say one of the reasons, well, the reason Cabrera had more RBIs is he had more opportunities. So he cashed in on those opportunities. I mean, if you want to try to start parsing everything that much, and you can make a case for everything. So some things, look, I'm all for advancing advancements in everything, in, in, in society, in sports, and all of that, right? We grow, we evolve as a society, supposedly. Right, that's the goal should be, but let's not you know lose sight of this. Some some things are still work, folks. Like being able to judge talent with one's eyes. You know, I don't need analytics to tell me that Juan Lagares is you know a transcendent center fielder from a defensive standpoint. Right? You can give me all the, the defensive metrics you want. I can just tell by watching him play that he is an outstanding center fielder. Nobody needed to give me defensive metrics to tell me Keith Hernandez is the best fielding first baseman maybe in the history of baseball. My grandfather, by the way, who was on this earth for 80-something years, said that. And he grew up, you know, he, he watched baseball in, in the 40s and 50s and beyond. I trust his opinion. You know, I also don't need you to tell me Wil Wilmer Flores is a lousy fielder. I don't need defensive metrics to tell me that either. So, you know, like everything else, you know, in moderation. I'm sure analytics can be useful when used responsibly and in moderation. But to base everything you do now around analytics to me is ridiculous. And that seems to be the direction Major League Baseball is heading. By the way, basketball is doing it too. Football less so, although there are teams that employ the use of it, like the Patriots. And again, some of that stuff I think makes a lot of sense. You know, there's statistics out there about punting. When you're on the other side of the 50 and it's fourth and less than three yards, that 
punting is almost is is, is always the wrong decision there. And I agree with that a hundred percent. So yeah, there are definitely times when it's useful. But to completely uh, you know, do every, make all of your decisions based on that from a personnel standpoint, from what you're from your strategy, from a game from game to game to me is is folly. All right, moving on. So there haven't oh, well, we'll keep it here on 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 baseball and, and the signing. So a couple of big contracts. You Darvish got a six years, hundred twenty six million dollars from the Cubs. Question I would ask is why? What exactly has you Darvish ever done? Oh, he's got a great strikeout to to a uh, great strikeout per nine innings ratio. Okay, that's nice. Anybody watch you Darvish last year for the Dodgers? In the World Series, and look, I understand guys can have a bad World Series. Doesn't mean they're not a bad pitcher. And we talk about this all the time. Baseball, unlike any other sport, the postseason and the regular season have absolutely nothing to do with with each other. So, because the baseball season is so ridiculously long—six months, 162 games—you need good starting pitching to carry you for the long haul, right? Just to get to the postseason or have a chance to get to the postseason. So, I get that. I'm not saying you Darvish isn't a good pitcher. He's a good pitcher. He's fine. It's fine. It's not worth six years and $126 million. I mean, I guess he is because he got it, but I certainly wouldn't give him that. You know, Eric Hosmer just got some ridiculous contract. Eight years. Now, he's 28, okay? But Eric Hosmer, I mean, he's a nice player. He's coming off a really good year for the Royals. He's actually a perfect example of the analytics too, right? The analytics geeks hate him from a defensive standpoint, they say he can't feel yet he was won three gold gloves. And I understand the gold glove award isn't always based on merit. A lot of times it's popular popularity contest and or a reputation thing, kind of like the Pro Bowl in the NFL. Right? And particularly if you're a good hitter, if you're if you're a very good hitter and then even a decent fielder at your position, a lot of times those you know, like Wade Boggs, I think, won a gold glove. That was a joke. I mean, Wade Boggs was known early in his career as being a very poor fielder. He, at least to his credit, improved himself to be adequate. But because, you know, he hit like 330, 340 every year, then he started winning gold gloves. Wade Boggs was no, nobody's idea of a real, a genuine gold glove uh, third baseman. Same thing with Derek Jeter. I think Derek Jeter won a couple of gold gloves with shortstop. It's laughable, right? Derek Jeter was fine. He was not a gold glove shortstop. But so the analytics guys hate Eric Hosmer as a fielder. Now look, I don't watch every Royals game, okay? I only know from what I see when he plays against the Yankees and what I saw when he played against the Mets in the World Series. It looks like a pretty damn good first baseman to me. So but the Padres just gave him like an eight year, I don't know what, 180 million, some crazy contract. You know, so there's still big contracts being handed out out there. But you know what? Let's take a look at Eric Hosmer's stats for a second, shall we? Because, again, a nice player, good player, and supposedly a great locker room guy, which, look, again, in baseball, that matters, right? The season's such a grind. It's such a long slog. You need guys in that clubhouse that keep it light, that keep guys focused. You know, almost every team, even the teams that win 100 games, look at the Dodgers, for crying out loud. They're a perfect example. Every team has a losing streak in baseball almost every year, even the good teams. And so, you know, you need guys to, to kind of keep morale up in that clubhouse, keep it light, but then also keep guys focused when they need to be. Because for such a long season, it's, 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 you know, I'm sure it's hard to be, you know, engaged and into it every single game, right? All right, hold on. Let's take a look. Let's see here. All right, Eric Hosmer. I'm sure, let's see, let's try to get to, all right, we're going to go to the roster. Let's see if they actually have him on here now. Be interesting. Uh, And of course, they do not. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's try it this way. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Sorry. 
Eric Hosmer. Let's take a look. All we want to do is see what his numbers are. Okay. Baseballreference.com. Thank you. <clears throat> Eric Hosmer. All right, let's see. His first full season in the majors was 2011. He played 128 games at 523 at-bats. 19 home runs, 78 RBIs, 799 OPS. Okay, pretty good. It's a nice year, right? You know, from corner positions, either in the infield or in the outfield, typically you want power hitters. You want an OPS of 800 or plus. So he was just, he was barely below 800. So pretty nice first year. Second year, 2012. 152 games, 14 home runs, 60 RBIs. Not very good. 663 OPS. It's actually an atrocious year. He hit 232, 304 on base percentage, 359 slugging percentage. That's atrocious. Okay. All right. You say a sophomore slump. Next year, 2013, OPS 801, 17 homers, 79 RBIs, 353 on base percentage, 300 batting average. Okay. Not terrible, but good, solid year. You know, 17 home runs and 79 RBIs. That's like Keith Hernandez territory from the 80s, though, right? And in an era now where everybody and their mother hits 20 home runs from a, a position that's supposed to be a premium power position, yeah, it's not, it's not great, but it's not bad, okay? 2014, 131 games, 547, no, sorry, 503 at-bats, so pretty much a full year. Nine home runs, 58 RBIs. Awful. 716 OPS. Terrible. So right now, you're sensing a pattern. Good year, bad year, good year, bad year. 2015, the year they won the World Series. He had a very nice year for them. 18 homers, 93 RBIs, 822 OPS. Okay? And then last year, really good again. He sort of broke the spell from the good year, bad year. 25 home runs. Sorry, 2016. 25 and 104. OPS 761. Surprised the OPS was not higher. He did play in 158 games. I think there's something to be said for that, particularly as a fan of the Mets, whose guys never, you're lucky if a guy plays 140 games. And then last year, 25 and 94, OPS of 882. Had a really, you know, really improved the on base percentage. Went from 328 and 16 to 385 last year. And the slugging went from 433 to 498. So, you know, look, last three years have all been very good, right? He's been above average at his position. So, okay. But is he going to move the needle for the Padres? I mean, the Padres, first of all, as you know, I barely acknowledge them as a major league franchise. So, uh, I mean, that's one. Um, So is it wise? Not that he's not a good player. He is a good player. But is it wise to devote all that money to a guy that, again, is Eric Hosmer putting the Padres over the top this year? Are they going to now contend for the, the NL West crown because of Eric Hosmer? No. And I get it. You know, this is not a one-year thing. It's a long-term contract. And he's 28. So you suspect he'll be around for a while. Is Eric Hosmer going to be there for all eight years of that deal? Not, not a chance. No way. All right. That brings us to the Mets. So I think probably several shows ago, maybe had a small mention of the Mets and the fact that they were seemed inclined to do absolutely nothing to improve their team from last year. And for whatever reason, Sandy Alderson, their general manager, made statements early in the free agent process and over the winter meetings at the Mets. Not only were they not going to increase the payroll, even though they slashed the payroll last year by trading off veterans like Jay Bruce and Neil Walker and Addison Reed. Um, and uh, who else did they get rid of? Um, Neil Walker, Jay Bruce. Addison Reed. See, it's hard, it's hard for me to remember because Sandy Olsen literally traded everyone he traded, he got back relief pitchers for. He didn't get one position player for, incredibly, unthinkably. So it's hard for me to keep up because usually in years past when teams make trades, you judge it by the guys they get back. Sandy Olsen basically got a mishmash back of scrub relief pitchers. So it's hard to kind of keep up with the. Uh, 
with exactly who we traded. But it was Bruce, Addison Reed, Neil Walker. Oh, Curtis Granderson. Right. Okay. All of all those guys were making money. And in almost all of those deals, the Mets made the other team pick up <clears throat> the rest of the uh, salary those teams were owed. Otherwise, the Mets might, may have actually gotten some decent prospects back. So you combine that with then the Mets were saying, well, not only are they not going to increase the payroll, it will likely go down. To which myself and every other Met fan out there said, excuses? What? Why? And of course, the Wilpons, as they are wont to do, hid in the shadows as they always do. No explanation from ownership. And then finally, things started to kind of to, to, to loosen, I guess. Um, then Jeff Wilpon said, well, no, you know, we didn't necessarily, peril doesn't necessarily have to go down, but, you know, spending money isn't also a guarantee of success. Well, you know, and, and specifically, you know, the Yankees is not the only way to do it. And then I pointed out, well, if you want to actually compete and contend every year it is, of course, it's not a guarantee for world championships. But again, we point this out constantly uh, baseball, the playoffs are a crapshoot, but you got to get in first. It's like, you know, the old New York lottery slogan, you got to be in it to win it, right? So you got to get there to have any chance. I, I Look, I'm not mad that the Mets lost the World Series in 2015. Royals played better than they did, and they exposed the Mets' flaws. I was thrilled they got there. It was great. But oftentimes we see in baseball the best team does not win the World Series. Who's the hottest at that time? And if you have one or two or even three really good starting pitchers or three guys who happen to be really hot at that time and one or two hitters that are really hot, that often is what wins World Series. All right, the Cardinals won the World Series in 2006. They won 83 games in the regular season. Beat the Mets in, in, the, in, in the NLCS. The Mets were a much better team. But by then, the Mets were, were worn down. They had no starting pitching left. And the Cardinals got a couple of big hits in key spots. And the Mets didn't. That's it. So the Mets decided to finally do a move, their first move, and they re-signed Jay Bruce. I like the deal. Three years, $39 million. Right? This guy coming off a 30 and 100 year last year. An important part of that was... He proved he could play in New York. And he shows up and he plays every day, which is a rarity, as we know, with the Mets. And he's a good guy. And he's accountable. And he stands in front of his locker after every game and he answers questions honestly and in an engaging way. He's extremely likable. Is he a perfect player? No. Right? He's not particularly fast. I'd say he's an average at best right fielder. You'd like to see him probably walk more than he does. But he's a good, solid player and a good, solid dude. I was shocked and surprised at how much I liked Jay Bruce last year. When the Mets made the trade for him at the deadline two years ago, I thought it was a very meh move. But to be fair to Sandy Alderson, they didn't give up much to get him. Traded Dilson Herrera, who the Mets were touting at the time as perhaps their second baseman of the future. Dilson Herrera flamed out with the Reds and didn't even make their team. So, you know what? To be in the spirit... Of, of fairness, Sandy Olsen, that was a good trade. Now, what you got back for Jay Bruce from the Indians was a disaster. A converted infielder, like 24-year-old pitcher who has never pitched above A ball. That's a joke for a guy who was having a great year. And the Indians, at the time when the Indians made the trade for Jay Bruce, they really needed him. They, they had all kinds of guys. Kipnis was out. Michael Brantley was out. And I think Chisenhall had just gotten hurt. So they had three outfielders, all hurt. And they needed a bat in the worst way. And Jay Bruce played very well for them. He played well in the playoffs for them as well. So good for, you know, I was happy for him. But that was a good, good signing. Now, is it ideal? No. Because the Mets don't really, the, the Mets' one true center fielder is Juan Lagares. But he's A, always hurt. And B, frankly, his offense, other than the one year from three or four years ago when he hit 280, has not been good enough to carry him as an everyday major league player. Now, Brandon Nimmo, scouts say, can't play center field, even though that's what the Mets drafted him as. Um, but in his small sample size, has proven to be a capable major league hitter. 
has a great eye at the plate, walks constantly, but he's a left-handed hitter. And Jay Bruce is a left-handed hitter, and Michael Conforto's a left-handed hitter. So as of now, the Mets' plan is to probably platoon Ligaris and Nimmo in center field. Jay Bruce will play right. Cespedes will play left until Conforto, if and when Conforto comes back from a shoulder injury, which I would suspect would be probably mid-May. At which point you'll have Michael Conforto playing out of position in center field. Although when he played there last year, he seemed to be at least adequate. But you would like more than adequate from your center fielder, if you can get it. Cespedes is gold glove caliber and left. And look, I know he had a horrible year last year. I attribute that to the injuries, all the leg issues. When he's focused and healthy, he's a very good outfielder. He's got a cannon for an arm, which we know. And when he can actually run and go get balls, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be above average and left. And again, Jay Bruce is, is, is probably average in right field. Not the greatest, not the worst. And then you'll have presumably Nimmo and Ligaris for depth. Ligaris can come in, you know, what I would probably suspect Callaway will do is when the Mets have a lead late in a game, you move Conforto over to right field and you bring Ligaris into play center field. Right? When you're trying to protect the lead. So they signed Ligaris. Then they're, oh, so I mean, sorry. They signed Bruce. Their first move was to sign some guy named Anthony Swarzak, who's a relief pitcher, who was a failed starter, who had, you know, a, a, a bit of a breakout year last year for uh, the Brewers and the White, I, no, the Brewers. And his numbers look pretty good. He averaged over a strikeout per inning. And all, you know, look, as, as, as we mention on this show all the time, relief pitchers, other than the true elite guys, it's such a crapshoot. You know, look at Brandon Morrow. He's a perfect example. All right, Brandon Morrow was supposed to be the next great, you know, he's supposed to be the next Roy Halladay for the Blue Jays. Right? Great stuff, big, tall, you know, looked the part, right? 6'5, 230, through high 90s. Great slider, had all the stuff, could never throw strikes, could never stay healthy. The, 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 the Dodgers picked him up off waivers. He was a non-roster invitee to spring training last year. He had a breakout year as a relief pitcher until, the, until Dave Roberts ran him into the ground and he had nothing left in the World Series. But he had a monster year for them, was great in the playoffs, and was a big part of their success. He just got you know ten million dollars a year from the Cubs. Now again, it, it, I, to me that's crazy. I would never do that. These guys, you know, again, these guys they they, they 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 are so hit or miss. They're so hot and cold. One year they're great, and the next year they stink. Then sometimes they come back. They're pretty good. I mean, you never know what you're getting with a lot of these guys. So we'll see. The Mets didn't give him a huge contract. Swarzak, two years, seventeen million. Okay. Is it reasonable to expect him to match his success from last year? I don't think it is. Certainly don't expect him to be better. So they signed him. They signed Bruce. Uh, They picked up the option for his Drupal Cabrera with the idea that he was going to play third base. Nobody with a brain thought that this was a good idea. He's not really... uh, Comfortable at third base. He's got a great set of hands. Decent enough arm. Not a lot of range. The Mets moved him off a shortstop because he doesn't have a lot of range. And while he's a decent major league hitter, he's certainly not your idea of a major league hitter from a third base standpoint. Right? Again, I grew up in an era when, you know, you want your third baseman to be a power guy. As Rubel Cabrera is not a power guy. You know, could he hit 20 home runs for you? Yes. But he's not a big thumper in the middle of the lineup. You know, he's probably best suited to hit either second or sixth, maybe, but probably seventh. A yeah, good, good, solid major league hitter, switch hitter. Had some big hits for the Mets in his first two years with them. And even last year, I know, I know he 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 angered a lot of people when you know the Mets basically decided they were going to move him off a shortstop to make room for Rosario. And he supposedly demanded a trade, and he got everybody. You know what? He actually played pretty well last year. 
especially compared to a lot of the rest of the players on that team. He didn't have a terrible year last year. So, uh, but at second base, he made sense. So anyway, the Mets finally signed Todd Frazier, late of the Yankees, by way of the White Sox, by way of the Reds. Now, Todd Frazier, again, not a, 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 his batting average has gone down every year. I believe last year combined, he hit under 220. And I poo-pooed his addition when the Yankees made it. I thought the big pickup there was Robertson and Canley, the two relief pitchers, and they were both very good for them too. Todd Frazier played well for the Yankees. And again, he's another good clubhouse guy. He's a local guy. He's from Thomas River, New Jersey. He's a good fielder. And last year, he, he did have a nice on-base percentage of 348, which is really good when you hit 215. It means he walked a bunch. You know, you look at on-base percentage, you want it to basically be 80 points higher than a batting average, at least, right? So if a guy hits 270, his on-base percentage is 350, which is slightly above the, the, the league average, right? Hit 300, 380 on-base percentage, that's great. So I like the Todd Frazier addition. Now it allows him to slide Cabrera over to uh, second base. They re-signed Reyes one year, $2 million, to basically be a utility guy. He can give Rosario a blow here and there at shortstop when he needs it. He can play second here and there when Cabrera needs a blow, which he always will because he always has knee issues. He can play third in a pinch. The Mets are going to have him take some reps in the outfield in the spring. I don't hate it. That's the time to try it. Again, more positions you can play, the more valuable you are. And Reyes, after really struggling for most of his time last year, finished strong. We'll see. You know, a lot of times, you know, the old adage is, you know, beware of the, the, the guys who have great Aprils and great Septembers. Now, you usually say that about young players, veterans. You know, Reyes does have a track record, obviously, of success. You know, he claims he figured something out with his swing. We'll see. But I don't hate having him as a bench player. I would not have been thrilled had he been the opening day second baseman. But to have him be the utility infielder, it's great. Plus, he gives the Mets a still He can still run a little bit, right? He had 25 stolen base last year. And since the Mets are devoid of speed pretty much everywhere else except for Cespedes, at least it adds a dimension that the Mets otherwise don't have. So that was fine. And now they just signed Jason Vargas, starting pitcher, classic soft-tossing lefty, gets by on guts and guile and a good changeup. Uh, won 18 games last year for the Royals. Had a great year last year in the first. Had a, sorry, had a great first half for the Royals last year. Pitched to a two and a half ERA. Had a miserable July and August where his ERA was in the sevens, and then he bounced back with a decent September. Look. Again, solid but not spectacular. Two years, $16 million, I think, was the contract. You know, Frazier was two years, $18 million. I mean, these, these deals are all team-friendly. And again, in the spirit of fairness, because I kill Sandy Alderson all the time, and rightfully so, these deals make sense. They're not long-term. You know, these guys are not superstars by any stretch, but they're good, solid Major League players that can help you win games. They're all good clubhouse, locker room guys. right? Reyes is, it, it set, it took the role of mentor to Rosario upon his shoulders the second Rosario showed up in the major leagues last year. He's reiterated that he will do that. Already talked about Bruce. Frazier has a very good reputation as a solid clubhouse influence. Jason Vargas, same thing. The other thing I like about the Vargas move is the new Mets pitching coach, Dave Island, was the Royals pitching coach last year, so he's, he's had him. He's familiar with him. Now, in an ideal world, Jason Vargas is a fourth starter. The Mets, at least to start, he'll be three. But this move makes sense on a lot of different levels. Number one, he's different than every other pitcher on the Mets staff, which basically everyone's a flamethrower, right? Everybody throws hard. You know, it's nice maybe to mix a guy in between, especially in, in the course of a series, who's a little bit different. Two, he's a lefty. Three, what this does now is it allows the Mets to not have to rely on the extremely unlikely event that from Mats 
Wheeler and Harvey, all three of those guys are going to be healthy for the majority of the season and or effective, right? The likelihood of that happening is about 1%. So now, if even one of those three guys makes, I would even say 25 starts, forget about 30. If one of that triumvirate gives you 25 starts, 175 innings, and pitches to an under four ERA, and assuming Jason Vargas gives you his, you know, 180 to 200 innings, probably in the NL, which is easier to pitch than the American League, probably a, a low, you know, mid, mid three, maybe high three ERA. And again, I'm assuming Syndergaard and DeGrom are going to be their, their, their great selves. Then you have a pretty good start in rotation. Then you've got four above average starters. Now you got a chance. And now your fifth starter can come from the group of Gesellman, Lugo, Montero. And maybe somebody pops up, you know, maybe a, a, a Corey Oswalt or somebody from the minor leagues pops up and has a great spring or gets off to a hot start at AAA and, 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 and puts themselves in the mix. So it's a good move there. What it also does... And again, this is wishful thinking probably because one thing Sandy Alderson has shown since he's been here is he has zero creativity or vision when it comes to making trades. Zero. Right? I mean, the Cespedes trade, yeah. That, that was, you know, but that was a deadline deal. Same thing with Bruce. And the Bruce thing was the, the Reds wanted to get rid of his salary, right? He was making $13 million a year. The other good move actually was Addison Reed. He got Addison Reed for basically nothing. The relief pitcher, and he was a valuable addition to the Mets. I actually wanted to see the Mets bring him back, but he didn't. He's with the Twins. Um, but what the Vargas addition does is, let's just say, for argument's sake, Wheeler and Mats both look great in the spring, right? They're healthy. They're throwing the ball well. They look really good. Perhaps one of those guys you could trade and you package him with somebody else, maybe a Wilmer Flores, who right now doesn't have much of a role on this team. Oh, I'm sorry. The Mets also signed Adrian Gonzalez, the former all-star first baseman who's 35 with back issues because they don't have to pay him any money. The Braves are paying the majority of his $21 million contract. The Mets only have to pay him the minim- veteran's minimum, which is like five hundred and fifty grand, as insurance slash maybe motivation to Dom Smith, who underwhelmed in a, a, a short audition last year, hit 198 with nine home runs. The nine home runs you like, the bad batting average is strikeouts, and frankly, the fact that he was overweight and out of shape, which is a horrible sign for a kid who's 22 years old and trying to make an impression on a major league team. But to his credit, and maybe it was because of the eight gone signing, although he was already working on getting in shape before that, uh, he's lost about 30 pounds and by all indications looks really good. Now, I get it. Spring training. Everybody's in the best shape of their life. Everybody. I understand. But I mean, this is legit. He's lost 30 pounds and he looks great. Dominic Smith, that is. So, um, but, you know, other than being perhaps a right-handed uh, platoon at first base with Dom Smith. And I like Wilmer. Anybody who's ever heard the show knows I like Wilmer Flores. I love his bat. I love that he cares, right? He doesn't really have a position. First base is his best position. It's probably best suited to be DH in the American League. He can't play third. He, can't, he certainly can't play short. And he's, not very, he's, not, he's just not a good fielder. He's just not. Right, first base, he seems to be okay because he has decent hands. He can pick it, right? But he's and he, he but he's very slow footed. He doesn't have good lateral quickness. He doesn't have good range. But you can get away with that at first base, particularly if you have a second baseman that's rangy. Although the Mets don't, because Ezreal Cabrera is not that rangy. Although at second base, he's better than at short. And Cabrera's got great hands. I, I think Cabrera will be fine at second. The Mets actually on the infield. 
look to be right now, assuming Adrian Gonzalez is the opening day first baseman, look to actually be slightly above average in the infield because Frazier is above average. You would think Rosario is going to be above average. That, but all indications are that he will be. You know, he he made some sloppy mistakes and errors. You can tell the kid's got talent. He's got range and he's got an arm. And Cabrera will be fine at second. And Adrian Gonzalez is known as a pretty good fielding first baseman. So in the infield, they should be pretty good. But, you know, maybe you trade a Max and a Wilmer Flores to an American League team that needs a starting pitcher and likes Flores' bat for, I don't know, maybe a catcher, maybe a, another top-ish reliever. Um, yeah, there, there, there's, there's possibilities. Maybe a second baseman. I, I, you know, I don't know. So it gives the Mets flexibility. They're not beholden now to relying on guys that have proven that they can't stay healthy. <laughs> right? I mean, Mats, when he pitches, looks great, although he didn't last year, but he's never been healthy. Same thing with Wheeler. Harvey has the best track record of those guys, but, I mean, he was awful last year. The Mets picked up his option this year. I, nobody would have shed a tear if the Mets decided to, to, to punt and not pay him the $6 million this year. He was wretched at his 6 CRA, plus all the off-the-field stuff, which I know that really rankles Mets fans, and boy, do the, boy, do the New York baseball writers really not like my, Matt Harvey. I mean, could they be – I mean, guys, try to be a little transparent and not be so 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 completely obvious and that you're just jealous of the guy because he, he leads uh, a fun, rich, young, handsome guy's New York City lifestyle. I mean, boy, I mean, call him, you know, well, he's such a diva. I mean, please. I mean, talk about a guy who's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Right? He wants the ball from Terry Collins. He's selfish. He doesn't want the ball from Terry Collins. He's gutless. And I get it. Look, he, he has he handled himself well all the time? Certainly not. Has he displayed a, a, a stunning amount of immaturity at times? Yes, he has. I also think the Mets fans hate him because they, they, they're under the impression that he doesn't like being a Met and he wants to be a Yankee and that he's just waiting, biding his time until he goes and plays for the Yankees. And that may be true. And I understand. And look, 10 years ago, that would have probably bothered me too. Eh, you know what? I don't care anymore about that stuff. I really don't. Go do, do whatever the hell you want. I, I, I honestly, it doesn't bother me. But you would think he would have the best chance of success among the triumvirate of Mats and Wheeler and, and, and himself because he's, he's done the best when he's pitched. And, you know, look, Mickey Callaway's supposed to be a pitching guru. We'll see. The Mets finally revamped their whole you know, medical staff and training staff. We'll see. That actually makes an impact. See, but the thing with the Mets is every time you want to get optimistic and give them credit – and again, I think Sandy Alderson's had a good offseason. Not great, good. I'd give him a B minus probably if I'm grading his offseason. I would have preferred Lance Lynn or Alex Cobb as the free agent pitcher that they signed, right? I would have preferred Mike Moustakis over Todd Frazier. And again, the Mets don't want to give the draft picks. I could understand that if the Mets had actually ever made a good draft pick other than Michael Conforto since Alderson's been here, but they haven't. And look, I like Brandon Nimmo more than most, but most people tell you that was a terrible pick, particularly when you grade it against the other guys that the Mets could have had out of that draft, like Michael Waka, I believe, and Alex Fernandez, or Jose Fernandez, rather. And I think, um, oh, and Corey Seager. Or maybe that was the next year. Maybe it was the Gavin Cicchini year. Anyway, my point is, Alderson's track record of drafting players has been very poor. It's one of the reasons why the Mets minor leagues right now is viewed to be one of the worst in Major League Baseball. So I don't care if you're going to give up a draft pick. If you're going to tell me you're going to get a guy in Mike Moustakis, again, who's 28 years old, who plays with a fire and a passion that has been sorely lacking from this team for the last several years, I don't care that you're giving up a draft pick. 
I'll take a proven player over a draft pick any day. I mean, baseball, draft picks are such a crapshoot. This is not, I mean, the NFL is a crapshoot. Baseball is really a crapshoot. But so anytime you want to give the Mets credit, then they go and do something like this. Yesterday, Sandy Olsen came out and said that he believes Tim Tebow will be in the major leagues. Now, the Mets have pretty much admitted that signing Tim Tebow was a publicity stunt to begin with. And I call it a publicity stunt. They don't call it that. You know, Sandy Olsen said, well, you have to understand that there is a component of entertainment here. This is all about selling jerseys and merchandise and drawing fans. And that's fine, I guess. At the minor league level, at high single A in Port St. Lucie, which, by the way, the Mets owners own, right? Other minor league affiliates oftentimes are not owned by the the same owners of the big league club. St. Lucie Mets happen to be owned by the Wilpons. So I guess I'm okay with that at high single A, except you're the Mets. You don't get the benefit of the doubt. Sorry, you don't. When almost every decision you make organizationally is wrong, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. And so the Tebow thing rankles me on a number of levels. Anybody who's ever listened to the show knows I can't stand him. Couldn't stand the hype surrounding him when he was a player in the NFL. Right? Hated the fact that he wore his religion to say word on his sleeve would be is a massive understatement. Basically, the fact that he pounds you over the head with a mallet with his religion, I find distasteful. So, you know, I, 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 I but the, the, the simple fact is he can't play. First of all, he's 30 years old, okay? And he can't play, he's not any good. He hit like 220 at high single A last year. And now Sandy also says he believes he's going to play in the major leagues. Why? Why would you waste a roster spot for Tim Tebow? Are you kidding? I mean, obviously that, that wouldn't happen until they expand the rosters to 40 in September. But, I mean... Unless the Mets are up by 20 games and I have the playoffs locked up already, which is not going to happen, means one of two things. They're going to be wasting a roster spot when they're in the thick of a playoff race and don't and can't afford to be wasting a roster spot, or they're going to be so bad again that it's not going to matter. Neither of which is a good look. So you know, again, it's just it's. It's always something with this team. I honestly think that Alderson at this point is just says stupid crap to annoy Mets fans because there's no way he genuinely believes. There's no possible way that Sandy Alderson can look at Tim Tebow and think that on merit he's a major league player. None. And if he does, then he shouldn't. I mean, look, I don't think he should have the job anyway. His track record is not good. He's been here for, what, seven years? Right? I already told you that the Mets minor league system is barren because he's drafted so poorly. And it's not as if the Mets have made all these trades and gotten all these superstars now that you have on the team. And they gave up all these great young prospects. They gave up one good one, Michael Fulmer in the Cespedes trade. That's it. None of the other guys, when they got Jose Uribe, Juan Uribe, and uh, Kelly Johnson, they didn't give up anything there. John Gant, whatever. Guys, maybe a marginal back end of the fifth starter. I know the Mets couldn't hit him, of course, but nobody else thinks this guy's any good because he's not. Akil Morris, then when they had to trade for Kelly Johnson again, I don't see him coming to the major leagues anytime soon, a relief pitcher. They haven't given up any Dilson Herrera, and they got Dilson Herrera back for... uh, Who'd they get him back for? Forget who it was. They got him from the Pirates, him and Vic Black. For a pitcher, I think. I don't even remember now. Anyway, my point is, is that it's not as if the Mets had all this great young talent in the minor leagues that Sandy Alderson had acquired, and then they traded him because for, for, for established star players. They didn't do that. So basically, the draft has been a complete and utter failure. The Mets don't make 
big high-profile free agent signings. So what exactly is it that Sandy Alderson's doing <laughs> since he's been here? Other than now trolling Mets fans by saying stupid things like Tim Tebow will be in the major leagues. And getting defensive and prickly anytime an announcer, the rare occasion an announcer calls him on the carpet for why you guys don't, why do you act like a, a, a mid-market uh, team when you're in New York and you have your own network and you were just in the World Series two years ago. Which means extra revenue. But he wants to get defensive. And he's irritated that anybody would dare question why the Mets don't spend any money. And by the way, before we start, you know, uh, throwing bouquets at Sandy Alderson and the, and, and the Wilpons, their, their, their payroll is about middle of the road now at $150 million. And again, I started the show by saying I, I think it's folly to give guys huge contracts. Yeah, old guys, guys who are 30 plus. But we talked about this, I think, months ago. The fact that the Mets weren't even, wouldn't even consider getting Giancarlo Stanton. Wouldn't even consider it because of the money. He might be worth it. He's 26 years old. Manny Machado is a transformational player. I know he didn't have a very good year last year. And still in a bad year, he was 30 and 90. 30 homers, 90 RBIs. Gold glove caliber defense. Mets wouldn't even consider him because of the money. That's what I have a problem with. Yeah, I don't want to give average players who are 30 years old long-term contracts. That's stupid. But it's not dumb to give a 25-year-old a five-year, $125 million contract. $150. If the guy's, you know, one of the best at his position, no, that makes sense. That's why I had no problems when they gave Cespedes, you know, four years, $110 million or whatever it was. He was under 30 at the time, and he had proven that he could play in New York. He carried them into the playoffs in 2015. He changed their whole season. The Mets were a 500 team before they got Ioannis Cespedes. That's the other thing. You know, everybody looks back and says, oh, the Mets made the World Series in 2015. Yeah, but they were an average team for a lot of the season that year. It wasn't like they had this great foundation in place and led from start to finish they were a mediocre team and then they got Kelly Johnson and Uribe that at least gave them a, a, a credible bench and two credible major league bats and then they got Cespedes that put them over the top and Addison Reed was a nice pickup to, to, for the bullpen and then later Tyler Clippard was a, a good addition as well but remember when the Mets trotted out Eric Campbell and John Mary May John Mayberry Jr. hitting fourth and fifth back to back in the lineup against Clayton Kershaw. So let's not pretend like the Mets had this great foundation in place. They didn't. They've largely stunk since uh, Sandy Alderson has been here. And he was the beneficiary, by the way, of Omar Minaya, who did not do a great job here either. Although he's back in a a scouting capacity, but he didn't do a great job. But Harvey, Mats, those guys were here when Minaya was here. Now, Alderson did trade for Zach Wheeler. Carlos Beltran, I guess that's a good trade. I don't know. Wheeler's never healthy. Yes, he signed Bartolo Colon. That was a good signing. Bartolo gave the Mets three very good years. No question. But, again, let's not act like there's this fantastic foundation in place. That Sandy Olsen is established by shrewd drafting and under-the-radar shrewd free agent signings. It hasn't happened. All right. That's going to wrap it up for today's show. We didn't get to the NBA because I had to. I couldn't help myself <laughs> when it came to the Mets. But we'll be back next week with another show. We're going to be back up and running with a new website. 
Also called JamalAboutSports.com. Check me out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, a multimedia extravaganza. Thanks for listening as always. Until next time, peace out.